Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Katrin Rutland. She's a professor at the University of Nottingham in England and a cardiovascular scientist. That means she studies the heart in a variety of species. And one of the most surprising things I learned from her during this conversation is that some animals have a bone in their heart but the heart is made of muscle. And that was just like mind blowing to me and I had no idea. And you'll get to hear all about that in this episode. So Katrin does a lot of amazing things, including being an awesome scientist, plus loads of science communication and engaging with students, writing scientific papers for kids. Yes, for kids, which is awesome. And also writing science fiction and nonfiction books. And of course, writing papers and everything else you have to do to be a professor. So she does all these amazing things. She's an awesome scientist and I had a lovely time talking to her. So enjoy. I work at the University of Nottingham. Um, I'm associate professor there um, in genetics and anatomy. Um, I kind of enjoy uh, writing in work and in my own time as well. Um, and yeah, one of the things I do, I guess, within my job, but outside the job as well, is just trying to encourage young people um, and older people into science. So yeah, that's uh, one of my things. And I've got a cat called Twinkle, who <laughs> is outside because she meows and purrs far too much for meetings. So <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should start with um, how you encourage people to get into science a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess um, as a child, I had nothing but encouragement from people all around me. So um, my teachers encouraged me, my parents encouraged me, um, my dad's a scientist. So um, back in the day, you were allowed to take children sometimes into into the lab and have a little look around. Um, so they really encouraged me just to follow my dream, really. Um, they bought me anatomy books to colour in during my summer holidays because I was boring like that. Um, and so I kind of think that I had um, really good sort of community support in following what I wanted to do. Um, so now I try to put on a, a different programme of um, things to help um, young people and older people enjoy and love and understand science. Um, so some days that might mean um, that I go into school, um, we look at, for example, the anatomy of dinosaurs or um, how DNA works in dogs. Um, and we might do that by making um, uh, licorice and marshmallow um, DNA strands oh. and yeah, things like that. And then I've um, also done um, scientific papers for children. So there's an amazing journal called Frontiers Young Minds, oh. where um, scientists write um, scientific papers for young people and um, children are then your reviewers. And they say, oh, we like this bit or what does this bit mean? Or can you tell me more about this? Um, and we just try to put science across in a way that young people will enjoy it. Um, and actually, I've had quite a few comments from um, parents saying, well, the kids loved it, but we loved it too. Um, <laughs> now I understand how DNA works, or now I understand how the heart works. Um, and then we, uh, I do things like um, going into pubs even, giving talks to groups. Mm -hmm. Um, Cafe Scientific and um, even doing art exhibitions um, to do with um, science and art 
and a number of different going into the museum having a night in the museum where um, children and their parents come along um, and then I, I was also lucky enough this year to be um, a British Science Association media fellow um, which meant that I really was able to get into the media side of um, sharing science so um, I went to Sky News, um, followed how they wrote up science and showed it on the television, um, was able to write my own articles, um, assisting with some of them going on to television. Oh. So, yeah, um, yeah, I guess a range of different activities from, you know, interactive, um, open days, that sort of thing, um, through to writing. And I've, I've written books for the public as well um, on different animals and the science behind different animals. That's a lot. Okay, first of all, uh, when do you sleep? <laughs> Second of all, all of these events and like activities that you do sound amazing. Um, and I love that it's so diverse and reaching a different set of audiences. Yeah, so um, yeah, sleeping. Um, I'm fond of sleeping. Um, but, <laughs> but actually, um, sometimes, you know, you wake, I wake up and I'm really lucky. I go to work and I do my hobby. So, of course, um, I'm doing my hobby all day of the serious science, the research, the teaching, um, and then also uh, try to find time at the weekends and the evenings to do these um, extra, extra things for other people so that they can hopefully um, get a little bit of an insight into the science or, or what I do. Um, and I think diversity is, is so fun. Um, one of the reasons that I do it is because um, we want to attract different people into science. Mm -hmm. um, we want to attract the right people, the people um, that have got um, imagination, um, have got a mind for science. Um, and actually, you have to show people what science is before they can think, oh, do you know what? I want to be a scientist. Um, so rather, rather like you're doing, which is um, sharing stories and, and that sort of thing, um, getting to different people, different audiences is really, really important. Um, and it's nice. You know, as a child, um, I managed to go to little summer schools and things like that. And um, somebody's got to put them on. So yeah, why not be a small part of that? Yeah, that's so cool. I, I love that the mission of uh, getting science to as many people as possible in understandable ways. Like that's, that's really my goal too. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, you alluded that you have written books. Tell me about your books. Ah, oh, well, there's, uh, I suppose, three different types of books in my life. Um, the first type of book are academic books. So I write um, academic books, or academic book chapters, um, predominantly for other scientists, um, about my um, area of research. Um, the second type of book would be um, books that um, catch people's imaginations, particularly about animals. So um, a couple of the books that I've co-written in the past have been um, The Horse and The Chicken. So we explore things like the natural history of those animals, um, the anatomy of those animals, how they work, um, what care they need. Um, so that's the sort of, I guess, second type of book. Um, and the third type of book is a little bit unusual for a research scientist, which is I also write um, science fiction and horror. Um, not full books yet. I haven't ventured there, but I write short stories and they're published in um, anthologies. So that's a kind of um, a fun way for me, really, A, because I love 
reading science fiction and horror. Um, so I'm heavily influenced by that. But of course, um, it's actually a, just another way to get science out there, imagining what can happen in the future. Um, by default, you kind of explain about some of the science that is happening right now. Um, and so, yeah, those are the three types, I guess, of books that I would normally write. That's fantastic. I, I love science fiction. And I often wonder if science fiction is, is like designing our future by creating things that then we just like actually build, you know, make idea and then we build it, or if it's just like the natural progression of things. But I also love when science fiction is based in actual science, besides just being like purely fantastical, even though that's fun too, but I enjoy it when it's like based in a reality that I can like, um, relate to yeah well actually one of the talks that i give is called science fiction versus science fact um and it's looking at um uh, some of the uh, great authors that have written about things and you know have they have they become fact um in in now or could they become fact in the future um it, and it's really difficult to draw the line because um whether or not um uh, science fiction is, is sort of creating the future that scientists work towards or whether it's based on ideas that they've had from reading science and thinking oh this could happen or that could happen um, I sometimes say that the science fiction that I write in some cases not all um, is a science that I would want to do but maybe the technology is not quite ready or there yet and we're still working towards it um, so it's some of them are, are a sort of dream list the stories that kind of go wrong, they're definitely not a dream list. So I <laughs> yeah. that's pure fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to have to look up the books that you've written because they sound great. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the work that you do. Um, you've sort of, a, you know, mentioned it in a circular way right now, but let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. So my main research is cardiovascular. So I predominantly look at um, heart disease, um, how the heart works, and also the circulatory system, mostly the blood vessels. Um, so um, people often think, oh, well, so you, you just look at the heart. Indeed, I look at the heart an awful lot. In fact, I'm really lucky because I get to look at the heart from lots and lots of different species, um, from human heart disease um, through to dogs um, and even chimpanzees. But on the other side of it as well, I also look at um, blood vessels, which are involved in so many different diseases. They're involved in diseases such as cancer, where, of course, you need blood vessels for the, a lot of the cancers to grow and develop. So I do a lot of work in, in different cancers and um, even work in lameness. Um, so, for example, um, people, horses, all sorts of different animals suffer from lameness. And the, the one that I look at is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where the heart often gets thicker and larger. But heart disease affects around um, one in four people mm -hmm. in the United States and um, many European countries and, of course, countries all across the world. And one in four deaths are caused by this. Mm -hmm. Now, over the years, um, we have, by scientific research, greatly enhanced people's lives. Um, since 1961, um, for example, in 1961, half of deaths were caused by heart disease um, and, and uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, but now a quarter are. So we're making huge advances just in those few decades. And so one of my um, things to look at is 
why how does the heart work its basic function um, and why does it go wrong and so I kind of term my research as um, how to mend a broken heart um, one of the cardiomyopathies um, is actually called broken heart um, disorder and um, so I think that by um, looking at the anatomy and particularly looking at the genes um, we can do various things. For example, we can identify early if somebody might get heart disease mm -hmm. um, just by understanding whether they have particular genetic mutations. Um, so we can put in um, interventions, um, give them pharmaceuticals maybe earlier than, for example, uh, maybe before they have a heart attack. Um, we can also um, advise families um, on coping with heart disease, particularly if we know that they may get it. Um, of course, that's in people, but there's another side too. For example, in animals, um, some of the breeds of dogs, for example, that we look at, um, some of them might be affected, um, up to 50% of the animals may be affected by particular heart diseases. Um, and so there um, we're trying to advise um, on, you know, could your dog get heart disease? How can we look at um, making it better? Um, if we understand how it works, maybe we can identify new drugs as well to help with heart disease. So there are so many different angles to look at it and to try and approach um, making heart disease better either before it fully shows um, in, in people or, or in animals um, or to help deal with it once, once people have got um, known heart disease. Yeah, a better understanding would be really valuable, like you said. Um, Definitely. And, and I guess I've been able to work it with some um, unusual heart diseases as well. Um, a recent um, paper that we had out was actually working with chimpanzees. Mm. Now, chim chimpanzees in the wild, of course, um, are um, becoming more and more rare. Um, they're under a lot of threats. Um, their rainforests uh, or their forests are being, are being cut down um, and they're becoming endangered. And so many of the chimpanzees that we actually have now are in zoos. And up to 80% of chimps um, have heart disease. Yeah. And they have heart diseases actually that are very, very similar to humans. So um, we were recently looking at them and we found a rather unusual um, finding in that actually these, um, some chimpanzees that we were looking at had a bone in the heart called the oscordis. Yeah. And it's never been shown before that chimps have a bone in the heart. Very few species actually have this bone. Um, Cows do, um, some otters do, some camels do. Um, but by finding this bone, we can start to understand, okay, is it in the diseased animals or the non-diseased? In fact, we only found it in the, the animals that had um, heart disease. Um, why is it there? Is it causing disease in the first place? Or is it actually the body, body's way of trying to help with heart disease? Um, so it leads to some very, very unusual findings. And finding this tiny little um, bone in the heart was really quite astonishing um, and actually led us to question in the paper, if chimps have it, could humans? Um, and it was interesting because after the paper was published, a group actually contacted me and said, oh, you asked a really interesting question. We think we found bone cells in some um, hearts in people. And so now they've just published a paper and it's something that you don't really think about a bone yeah. in the heart. <laughs> right. Cause 
correct me if I'm wrong, but the heart's a muscle, right? Or at least mostly muscle. So they feel like there shouldn't be bone in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it's not standard. I mean, at school, at grad school, um, you know, it, it's not standard to be taught that there may be um, a, a, a heart bone. In fact, um, in the vet school, of course, where I teach, we do teach about this bone because it's, it's standard to see in, in some animals, such as mm. cattle. It's fairly standard in, in sheep. Um, but it's unexpected. It's not there in most species. It's only there in a handful of species. Um, so what is it doing there? Is it uh -huh. some sort of um, evolutionary throwback to try and help the heart to beat? Does it pass electricity better through the heart? That could be a reason why it, 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 it exists, to, especially during heart disease. Um, in other animals, it's not there because of heart disease. It's just there because it's there. Um, <laughs> So, so trying to understand this can actually help us. Um, uh, it might understand, um, help us to understand, you know, how the hearts are reacting to heart disease. And then, you know, it may help with even conservation programs such as chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. But yeah. certainly it's not something you'd expect in the middle of muscle. Right. Yeah, so that you kind of alluded to what my next question was going to be. It was like you said that certain animals have this heart bone. Do, is there a purpose to it or is that question kind of like asking like why does my finger have a bone in it <laughs> <laughs> that is the one of the wonderful questions actually about this oscordis um why is it there um because it um because it's sometimes there well because it's nearly always there in cattle we think okay this is this is pretty much normal in them um it's sometimes in species in the young and the old, and sometimes it only develops as the animal gets older. Um, in our chimpanzees, it seems to only be there as they develop severe heart disease. Um, so we could say one of a few things. Is it there to help the structure of the heart, to keep the heart sort of together? Well, it could be, but if that was the case, actually, surely huge hearts like the whale or, you know, um, other, other animals with large hearts just should have one as standard. Um, is it there to help if the um, muscle starts to get diseased and to help um, conduction of electricity is another question or the electrical conduction that happens in the heart? Um, so yes, it, it may help with that. But that's actually one of the things that we're trying to look at is why does it develop? Why is it there? Um, why is it fairly standard in other animals completely absent in most animals mm -hmm. um so yeah that's one of the one of the questions and it's up for hot debate amongst the oscordist scientists of the world as to why does this thing exist <laughs> yeah that's really intriguing how did you well so i guess i'm trying to wonder is what's your background like how did you get into studying cardiovascular systems in a different species um, cause in my head, I often associate that with like medical doctors or people in, you know, research hospitals or things like that. So I'm just curious, like what your background is and how you got to where you are. Yeah, that's true. So, um, I always enjoyed biology at school. So from the age of about four or five, I just said, uh, I wanted to be a professor. That was that, um, of biology. And, you know, so that was where I was going. Um, so obviously all through school, I worked hard on biology and tried to do well in my exams. And um, 
my I decided though that the first degree that I wanted to do was in applied biology mm. because I wanted to be a researcher. Um, I wanted to do the the research behind um, um, disorders. And at that stage, actually, I wasn't too sure which disorders I wanted to go into. Um, in my in my degree, I um, did all sorts of different modules. Um, I did genetics, I did anatomy, and we, we even had to do a little bit of plant biology. Yeah. Now, I knew plants weren't for me because I kill every plant. So <laughs> I figured that I'm a bit better with animals, a bit better with people, so I'll go down that route. Um, I decided to do a master's, which was based partly in Britain and partly in Germany, in um, molecular microbiology, which, of course, actually is mostly looking at bacteria, but it was the genetics behind it. Mm. And I decided that although I loved bacteria, it wasn't quite right for me. And so when I was offered a um, PhD, um, actually, um, it was actually looking at eyesight, but it was looking at the blood vessels particularly. And I was also looking at the placenta, particularly the blood vessels. And because I was looking at the cardiovascular system, the blood vessels in the heart and so on, when I was later looking um, for my first research post, um, a cardiovascular um, scientist came up to me and said, would you work on, on this project? And I thought, that's perfect. It's the heart, it's blood vessels. Um, I, I think that's absolutely wonderful. So the first gene that I was actually looking at, um, we were looking at mutations in this gene, and we found that it caused a new type of um, cardiomyopathy um, in babies which hadn't, um, hadn't been identified before, and that was me sold on the cardiomyopathy side. Um, and interestingly, because I had looked a little bit at um, cancer therapeutic agents in, during my PhD, I had carried on also that um, interest in trying to understand um, blood vessels in cancers and how they're affected and what sort of drugs we can use on them. So now I run my own lab, fast forward a few years, um, and of course I, I still stick with the heart, but also work with lots of different researchers um, on on um, on cancer. In fact, there are um, so many similarities um, between the two, especially with the blood vessels. So it's really interesting to look at. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I'm always curious how people got where they are, especially when it feels like to me like, oh, that doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't really line up with how my brain thought it would. And I always find it really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I always find it interesting to see how, how different people get to, to the places that they're going and find an um, area of research. I think it's funny that you said um, plants weren't for you because I also <laughs> kill plants. Yet a vast majority of my job is like working with plants. <laughs> but really, I'm not responsible for keeping them alive. The wetlands are. So... <laughs> that nature was going to grow the plants and I was going to them. I might have thought more seriously about it. Um, <laughs> and actually, um, plants are, do have fascinating um, comparisons with um, animals because the root um, network um, is especially interesting um, to watch growing and, and ever so similar to a blood vessel system. Um, I, yeah, so it's... Um, it's it's sort of an interesting comparison. They 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 both have external features which affect them, um, and you can affect the way that they grow by putting different factors um, or different uh, drugs or pharmaceuticals in them. 
Um, so there are there are similarities there between between the plants and the animals. Um, one of the places I use um, a technology called uh, computer tomography quite a lot. And um, I tend to go to plant sciences to do that, where they look at a lot of root growth. Um, and they always say it's nice to see a, a chimpanzee heart going through the machine. It makes a little difference from, from roots. <laughs> I, this is going to sound really silly. I never thought about like the root system and how it might be similar to other systems that, you know, are responsible for keeping things alive. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I once, it's amazing how other fields can impact the, your way of thinking. I once went to a conference on um, the dynamics of blood vessels in, in tumours. And um, there was a person there um, from the oil industry. And, and I thought, well, how does the oil industry um, affect blood vessels in tumours? And they were then showing maps of how they um, drill down to dig for oil. And it looked just like a vascular network when, when it's growing. And then he overlaid the comparisons of a, a tumour blood vessel network and the way that they drill. And the similarities were astonishing. And I thought, gosh, we can, we can learn so much by working with different people. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting where you can get concepts, ideas and thoughts from, really. Honestly, that's one of my favorite things about this podcast is talking to people who are not in my little field, because the things often the things people say will spark something in me. And now next time I'm in the field taking a soil core and looking at all these roots, I'm going to think about it quite differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think... Um, Science is getting more interdisciplinary. We are, um, for, for several of my papers, actually, um, that I've worked with um, brilliant scientists who are in different fields, mathematicians, um, physics. We were looking at um, lameness um, in, in horses, for example, and um, how the hoof uh, tissue grows. And actually, we were using um, maths and physics to help explain some of those principles. And the type of maths and physics that I would have no hope of, of um, fully comprehending without it having been explained to me by these, these brilliant people. Um, and, and even to um, have most of the machines that we have um, to, to look at biology, we have to rely on the innovation of the people that innovate microscopes and um, scanning devices, you know, all of the engineers um, and, and, and people behind that type of thing. So I really think that, that now more than ever, we rely on the different disciplines working together. Oh, yeah. It's interesting what I picked up on that was the horse part because um, I grew up around horses and my mom has, well, she had two horses. She now has one horse. Um, The horse was like 25, the one that just recently passed away, but she had lots of hoof problems and she was often lame and she foundered several times and all, all these issues. And I always thought it was in, that was over like the course of like 10, 12 years. I always thought it was interesting how the farrier and the vet, the creative things they came up with to like help the horse like offset that and sort of like work with it. And it just seemed like magic to me. Like they just understood how this horse, like the leg and the foot or hoof system work so well. And to me, I'm just like, I, it's just magic. It was really impressive. I thought it was really complicated. 
And and it's phenomenal how quickly um, uh, the veterinary medicine has come on. And actually, um, if you look at the way that farriers, vets, physiotherapists and all of the related people that work together um, to try and help your horse and other horses um, and understanding what's happening within the foot, um, the science behind it. And and also it's important um, for them all to be able to work together um, work in different cases to try and say, okay, what works best? Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there are a number of different approaches, but what works best now? What can we do in the future? Um, I work with a brilliant um, group um, in Russia, and they're using um, gene therapy um, to try and um, uh, cure lameness, basically. Mm-hmm. And these are advances that um, we've really only just started human gene therapy trials as well for disorders such as cystic fibrosis. Um, so really, the veterinary world is up there um, looking at um, similar things to what we're looking at in human medicine. How can we help this problem? Um, would would it cause other problems? Um, does it um, cure lameness? Does it does it cure it faster and in more cases? And of course, we have to go through those stages of working it out before it can be a, a, a way to treat um, to treat people's animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that could be caused by so many different sources that it's hard to like figure out what it's like to suss it all out to figure out what's actually happening. Because man. Oh, it is. It is. And and it's rather like um, many actual disorders and diseases. Actually, there can be so many different ways of approaching it. Um, is it genetic? Is it environmental? Um, if Is it what you eat? Um, is it smoking and drinking alcohol? All of these different things that we look at with all these different disorders. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, actually, um, it's really important to understand why is it happening? But then sometimes with, for example, if we're looking at treatments, um, sometimes in a way it doesn't matter um, why it's caused, but then sometimes it does matter why it's caused. So it sometimes um, can feel frustrating in research that it can take a few years um, to uh, try and get answers. But of course, it's because you have so many questions to ask. Yeah, I feel like that's probably true in a lot of, you know, research areas. Just like, oh, I have this question. It's going to take me three years to answer that. And then I'm going to have like a hundred new questions. <laughs> it's just rolls and rolls and rolls. I, I always say to my PhD student, you, you start with, a, with questions and that's your, your three or four year, year PhD. Um, and if by the end you've got so many more questions, then that's a successful PhD. Um, <laughs> you, you, it's, it's exponential. You answer one question, you ask 10 more. Um, mm-hmm. And then what you hope is that either you or somebody else or, or you know, lots of other people will carry on trying to find the answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's often done like linearly, right? Like one person does this and then there's all these new questions and the next person comes in after and answers one of the next questions it's rarely done where it's like four people working together to answer four different questions simultaneously. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, but one of the things that I'm seeing certainly over sort of my, my research career is that actually people are understanding the value of working together. Research groups are often getting bigger. Um, 
if we see some of the physics papers coming out um, from Switzerland, from CERN, we can see there are hundreds of names on each paper. Um, these are hundreds of scientists that have got together to try and work collaboratively. And we see that more and more, I think, um, in genetics, anatomy, medicine, of um, more and more people coming together to try and answer the same questions together. Um, of course, sometimes there's a, a sort of competitive elements as well. You might see different groups working on the same question, but that's actually good in its own right because you might come up with different answers, different ways of looking at um, the, the research question, which that's, it's a good way of doing it too. Yeah, I think I guess the point here is that there's lots of ways to do research and, you know, they all have their pros. <laughs> yes, that's it. They sometimes have their cons, but they do, the vast majority of them have their pros, right? Yeah. I was thinking when I said that about four people answering four questions, I was thinking of friends of mine in grad school who it was a group of three or four of them working with Red Snapper, so it's an offshore fish, and they were using different parts of the fish, even they only had to, you know, they could all use this one fish together to answer a variety of questions simultaneously rather than like doing it in a series. And I thought that was really clever, but um, that requires them to have the funding to do that as well, which can be tough. That's the problem. And actually, um, uh, with myself and my collaborators, use, try to use that approach where we can. We try to have several people working um, in the same area, but answering slightly different questions so that they're complementing each other's work. Yeah. Um, it speeds up the research. Um, of course, our students love it because they're working in similar areas. You've got more people to bounce your ideas off and chat to, collaborate with. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, like you just said, sometimes you can't do that. Um, if you, um, funding is so competitive. Um, so if you get the funding to only have one PhD student working on, on the area, you've got to make the most of that. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that's when it happens in a linear fashion. Yeah, yeah, it can be a bit tough. That's, that's partly why I never wanted to go to ac into academia. <laughs> like, I don't want to hustle for money and I don't want to go back to school <laughs> after my master's. That was enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's part of the fun um, and part of the diversity. I think um, in academia, um, they expect you to um, teach, do research, be a manager, get the money, do um, a public, you know, publications, um, uh, get the word out there. There are just so many different jobs that you do in a day. Um, some people love the change and the fun of that and the, the challenge of it. And some people think, oh, you know, another, another job is more right for me. Um, and, and actually, um, I've had uh, postgraduate students, my PhD students have gone on to do so many different jobs. Um, some have gone to work for um, government agencies, some have gone into academia, some have gone into science communication um, and industry. There are so many, so many different jobs out there that actually postgraduates don't always just follow that um, academic pathway. They go into so many different fields. Yeah, I know. I think that that's cool because I feel like a lot of times people feel like a scientist has to have a PhD or have to even have a master's degree. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, I think that there are scientists in all aspects of different jobs. You know, there's, I have a master's degree and I'm a scientist. Scientists doing science communication. There's, there's all kinds of scientists out there. Absolutely. And, and, and we need all types of scientists. 
um, you know, um, a, a PhD isn't for everybody. Um, and some of the best scientists I know don't have a PhD. It's not a prerequisite. Um, it's one form of training. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it depends on, on what sort of job you're going to, um, sometimes how quickly you want to work up the scale. Um, mm -hmm. but, but definitely, there are so many different routes into science and so many different types of science. And, and it's ever expanding, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, science communication wasn't something, it was something that was maybe done 10 years ago, but it wasn't um, a career pathway that we would highlight. Now, yeah. it most certainly is, of course. Yeah, talking about science communication, that's interesting because I was I just had a conversation the other day about science communication because I finished grad school in 2010 and like science communication was like not a thing, not really. Um, I was expected, you know, to do my work, keep my data and research to myself, like not share it with other people in any capacity. Um, not that there was like social media was only really Facebook, so it wasn't like that was a thing. Um, so I've been thinking the last couple of days, like, what would it have been like to have been in grad school and have that sort of almost be like a given, you know, like, I feel like a lot of students in grad school share at least not show their data, but like share an insight into the life of what they're doing or an insight into their project or just something cool that happened, you know, I just think that would have been so interesting. It would have been a whole different level to grad school. I, I think it's really important. We now we train well, certainly in, in my in my um, school, my university, we train postgraduates into um, into science communication. Um, so of course, nobody wants to share their science before it's published in a proper journal. So that's rule number one. Don't put it out on Twitter um, because um, it's important to wait until you have the full scientific um, research. You, you've, you've got it in a paper. It's been peer reviewed. But once the paper is out there, often it is quite important to, um, to share it, not just with the scientific community and the medical community or the, the community that you're in, um, but also with the public. So, for example, um, I remember my first time when we uh, put a press release out and it was the work that I was doing um, with um, a Russian, Russian collaborators and um, we put a news release out and wrote the press release and for the next three weeks I had nothing but um, interviews, could you write this, could you read this, could you check this, um, it made national and international news and it was an absolute shock to the system. And one of the first things I did after that shock was to tell my PhD students, right, this is what happens because nobody prepares you for it. Uh -huh. um, and, um, you know, being able to share things um, on social media, um, being able to share things through, I don't know, um, writing things for the press um, is, is an important thing in what we do because actually the public fund a lot of research mm -hmm. and I firmly believe that it's really important that they understand what's happening with that funding um, otherwise they might not see any benefits um, one thing that I often hear is oh but the funding hasn't cured cancer well actually it's gone a long way to helping a lot of people with cancer and the advances we've made have been phenomenal but mm -hmm. unless you kind of almost compare and contrast um it's it's sometimes really difficult to see those advances that are being made um and and then for, for me as i said it's important that actually 
um, we put things out like uh, the children's papers and helping children to understand um, just because if you can get kids to be excited about um, science they're going to be interested even if they don't go into science as an adult they're going to be interested when they see the news they're going to be able to maybe understand what the graphs say when we're talking about covid or they're just going to have that thirst for knowledge Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. I mean, now science communication is something that we talk to our students and our postgraduates about. Um, we talk about, you know, whether they'd want an, a career in it um, as a full time career. Um, but if they don't want a full time career, we've got to give them training um, to be able to manage it if they're the type of person that wants to be able to do that. Yeah. So it is increasingly important. Oh, I agree. I know what you said about um, how the public funds a lot of research is totally true. And I think often overlooked, I guess, that I, I feel like there's a bit of responsibility to like get the word out about like, hey, look, this is what this money is doing. And look at all the things that we've learned and the progress we've made because just cure cancer is a massive ask and that all the cancers are different and like, but we've made progress in this, this, and this. Like, I think I think getting that out is valuable. It's not just with cancer, but just, you know, in all of these different projects and research. Absolutely. And, and it's difficult to, sometimes to do that because, you know, hundreds of thousands of papers are published every year in the different, in, in the different sciences, of course. Um, and not every paper is, is going to get there out into the public. But I think it's important that um, we have the science documentaries that um, highlight things that are being done and it might not be specific paper but it might be overall areas um, and that's that's important and just if every scientist spoke to um, other people about what it was that they did and how they did it and um, how valuable the funding was and what it had done that in itself would help and I'm sure actually quite a few people do that so maybe science communication has always been done but it's never um not always been formalized yeah yeah now it has a name right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i want to go back to the kids papers thing because i think that is amazing and i'm wondering how it would you said it was called frontiers young minds is that right yeah, yeah. how does that get to the kids i guess like how is that information sent out or accessible yeah. So first of all, I guess all credit has to go out to the journal group called Frontiers. So okay. the Frontiers okay. journals um, are um, scientific journals. Um, they publish real science all of the time and they have um, been able to set up um, this, um, this journal and they put the cost for it. And what they do is they ask scientists can you um, write papers for us in a way that um, young people, children, young adults would understand? And then it, each paper really goes through the same process as a normal um, research paper. Um, so, so, and there are actually, there, that's just one example. There are other people that write um, for other children's journals or children's magazines or so on. But effectively, they try to advertise through um, Twitter and Facebook. They advertise to teachers and schools. Um, I noticed that a lot of my papers have been um, picked up by teachers who then use it to help teach a class. Um, homeschooling it, um, has really been quite invaluable for some people. Um, so quite often, um, a young person can read it on their own, of course, 
but they can also read it with an adult in school or a parent um, and just try and understand a little more about the science and it's everything so I was looking at it yesterday and it's everything from arctic fish um, um, through to anatomy um, there are so many um, different types of papers that that they produce and it's about making it fun so for my last few papers that I've worked with I've worked with artists um, to try and portray our science um, a paper that is is coming has actually looked at different types of scientists um, and we've drawn um, cartoon characters of what these scientists did and what they looked at um, so it's a challenge for us because I'm sitting here saying how can I explain this to young people to make it interesting um, so interesting facts you know might range from an octopus has three hearts um, not many people have two hearts um, unlike you know um, those characters that you might see in Doctor Who um, <laughs> but some people sometimes do have two hearts such as some conjoined twins um, or um, it used to actually be a method to try and get around um, some heart diseases is that they used to put a heart transplant in so your old heart and the new heart would be in there trying to work together um, a so-called piggyback heart but it's just trying to think okay um, if I were a kid what would I, what would I be interested in um, of course, we run it past my niece and nephew and some other friendly uh, young people and the peer reviewers look at it as well. So I think by basically saying, you know, kids understand science, they are so good at science, teaching them the intricacies of um, DNA, um, heart disease, they can do it. They, they understand it. They are, they've got such good minds. As long as you give them the tools to do with it, um, for example, explaining words, scientific mm -hmm. words. Young people are great with science. So I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a place for um, scientists trying to help um, the professionals that teach young people, such as teachers and their parents, and trying to put it out there so that young people are interested and captivated. Yeah, I just thought, I was curious about how it got to, to kids because short of like someone physically showing up in the classroom, it can be hard to reach students, you know? And so, um, yeah, that, that's just, that's why I was curious about the logistics of it. But I think that that sounds so fantastic. Uh, I think I might've found some Sunday reading I need to go do. <laughs> <laughs> they are so much fun. And they really, um, being an author of several of these papers, you, you get to see sort of behind the scenes and how many young people are downloading it. and somehow they do get it out to young people. They're doing a fantastic job because these papers get thousands upon thousands of reads and downloads. Um, and even I've had um, young people contact me about these papers. And so, and that's actually another side of outreach that you don't really think about on a formal basis, but answering questions from um, young people. Um, and I've, you know, helping with coursework even. Um, yeah, I've got to interview a scientist, would you? And, and, and so actually these are other ways to uh, just communicate with, with young people, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. And I tell you, the cartoons that um, the Frontiers designers do for each paper are fantastic. They're something to see, just worth having a look at. Nice. Yeah, I read, I, well, I didn't read. I was listening to a podcast the other day um, 
with two big name science communicator people and they were talking about how it's like the eight but like before the age of like 10 or 11 um is like when you really need to start getting certain topics to kids and it includes science you know it's, it's just a little bit something about the way the brain works it's just a little bit easier to under start understanding those kinds of things i don't fully understand it because i'm over the age of 10 but um <laughs> i just thought that was really fascinating because I mean, I think it just highlights the importance that education in like, you know, when you're young is, it's very valuable. And I think we need to focus there. Um. It, it is. I, I remember going in um, to a school where the um, children we were teaching all day or not teaching, but so helping and, and, and doing science communication with, they were between the ages of um, five and 11. And um, we were teaching all about DNA and um, I bought dinosaurs into it and wore dinosaur dress because kids like that. If you if you capture them with a dinosaur dress, you're sort of in. Um, so uh, we've, we've done a number of different things. And what I love the most was the teachers um, actually asked them to draw thank you cards, which was gorgeous. Oh. But what was even better was the way that so many had um, drawn little DNA double helixes and got it right. And I thought, okay, I tried to make it fun and I tried to give them some information, but I'm not going to be devastated if five-year-olds don't know the, the basis of DNA. Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, they picked it up. They are like sponges. Um, so, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm just saying everything that any parent and teacher knows already. Um, but, but really, it's, it's astonishing for me as a scientist to understand how much they pick up, how much they can learn, how far you can take your topic with them. Mm -hmm. And um, even when we've talked about things like ethics and how research is done and um, complicated things like what is a hypothesis? Mm -hmm. Kids are great. Their imaginations, of course, are wonderful. And that's when we want to hit them. To, to be a scientist, you have to be creative. You have to have an imagination. Um, and so if we can capture that in children and um, keep it going, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't spend any time around kids. There's not even kids in my family in any, in any way. Um, so it's always fascinating to me to hear, like, what kids really do understand. Because I don't particularly remember that about my own life when I was a kid, you know, like remembering what happened in science class in fourth grade or something. Um, I just find it really interesting and valuable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I guess one of the other reasons that I'm interested in um, getting science out there is that are or allow themselves, I suppose, to go into science. I have uh, a keen history of women in science and where we are today. Um, it's really interesting because I do a lot of um, talks to adults and. Um, because I work in a vet school, I say, oh, you know, um, about 80% of our students are female. And they're absolutely shocked by this because traditionally we see um, veterinary surgeons as male. And um, we, um, so I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, getting diversity, ensuring that people um, from all walks of life know that they can be scientists and you can get there, you can do it. Um, I hadn't ever realised, I think, that um, traditionally women maybe had found it a little harder to get into the sciences or we were maybe less represented in sciences. And I think that's because when I was younger, nobody said anything to me. And that was great, um, actually. Um, I just I just went for it and, and, and that was good. But I do remember, for example, um, being in my maths class in school 
Um, and in the final years when we did A-levels in the UK, um, there were so few girls doing maths. Um, just because they were maybe a bit put off by maths. But I've also heard young people saying, oh, well, I don't do um, maths because it's a boy's subject. Or I don't do um, chemistry because it's a boy's subject. And I think, gosh, we've still got to encourage um, different people from different different walks of life um, into the sciences and just to say no science is for everybody um, it doesn't matter um, what your background is um, you can make it there might be lots of different routes into science um, but just to really I think keep going with it don't don't let others put you off mm -hmm. yeah I totally agree I had a similar experience in that um, I maybe naively didn't notice that the gender balance was unbalanced, you know, like, and nobody ever said anything to me either, like, oh, well, you're a girl, you shouldn't do this, but, or maybe I just didn't hear them, I don't know. Um, but I also grew up in like, a, like, I grew, all my friends growing up were boys, like, that was just who was in my neighborhood, you know, so I, maybe I just didn't notice because I was used to it. Um, but at the same, in, you know, at the same time, so I just never noticed and then maybe you stop paying attention. But then in hindsight now, now that I'm aware that this is really a widespread thing, like, yeah, this, this is the problem. Like we need to, you know, not tell people that subjects are for certain people, like, because it's for everybody. Um, and it's really support people that have an interest. And even if they have an interest early, you know, because that's when, you know, you don't want to shut somebody down early just because they're a kid, you know, if they have an interest. And actually, and to a lot of my conversations, I've, I've, people have had this interest really early in something and was either like turned away from it by someone that's like sort of, you know, a parent or a teacher who or whatever, or they were just allowed to go for it. And then that made a big difference. A yeah. rambling way to say we need to support people and like, you know, help them see that science is for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remember um, going into a school and, um, I, I was I said oh um, can you um, name any female professors and I've, I've asked this question for quite a few years amongst lots of other just yeah, other questions um, and for the first time I believe four years ago I got my first female professor mm. and I couldn't believe it because I've been asking the question for so many years um, and um, it was Professor McGonagall um, so we're talking Harry Potter here but she is female and she is a professor and so I was absolutely overjoyed but it made me think oh gosh how many uh, doctors, um, vets, scientists, professors um, do young people see on TV um, even in children's TV programs and so I said oh um, you know what job do you think I do and they were saying oh we think you're a teacher miss and I was like okay and I put on my lab coat I put on my specs and I was like, what job do you think I do now? And they're like, oh, we think you might be a professor. I was like, yeah. So it matters being out there. It matters being seen. If young people can see um, a diversity in the people, um, and that might be on children's TV and it might be anywhere else. Um, but at least if they can see those diversity and see different people, see different routes, you know. Um, and I always say you don't have to be at the top of your class to be a scientist um you you want to just be able to work hard and love your science really mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that representation in all kinds of media, in real life, in fiction, on TV, like all of those things are important because that's what the things people interact with on a daily basis, you know, particularly things like Harry Potter that are huge and everybody has read them. You said to me, yeah. gosh, you've gone for very few female scientists at, at your level, at the higher levels, um, and you've gone into another area, which is science. Often, I think because of that, they, they say that the characters in science fiction are more likely to be male, or the leading characters are. Um, so you get that kind of science fiction. Um, some of the, um, the, the, the characters are more likely to be male, so then you don't get pe uh, people that you can necessarily identify with. But I think I, I love superheroes, um, and more often people that are uh, being representative of the world that we live in. Um, so predominantly, um, that we have uh, a diversity in our superheroes. And I kind of hope that that's the way that science is going. A few less capes, maybe, more lab coats, um, but certainly more, more diversity, or people at least just understanding it is out there and it can be for them. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I like the this is what a scientist looks like that's been all over Instagram because yeah like I know everybody's through the lab coat and they think scientist however like maybe my floppy hat and waders that's an in indication of a scientist you know <laughs> so uh, I think that just and even just showing something like that you know that it's not a certain sort of attire that makes someone a scientist is helpful too. There's so many ways that we can just show all the different people in science. Definitely, definitely. You don't have to have the lab coat um, and you don't have to have particular equipment and there's so many different types of scientists looking at all sorts of different things. Um, there's just so much to choose from. Mm -hmm. And that's what's great about science in my opinion is it's so wide it's so diverse. Um, but not, it's not always highlighted what is so diverse about it. You know, and just topics and people and backgrounds and all of these things um, and that hopefully it will only continue to get more diverse which is, you know, I think everybody's plan. Yeah, I mean, for, for example, I, you know, I think until you get to potentially just university level, you're not necessarily aware of, um, mm -hmm. and even then, um, oh gosh, I love Kakapo, these huge parrots, and um, they're very endangered, uh, live in New Zealand. Uh -huh. um, and I wasn't aware of them until I was um, doing my degree. And I remember thinking, gosh, I might want to be a Kakapo scientist. Now, there are very few positions available to be a Kakapo scientist, but there are people doing it. And, and I wouldn't have known about that type of uh, conservation science that people do um, unless it was for the university. And I'm sure even though I've been a scientist for so many years now, there would be so many jobs that I wouldn't know about out there. Um, so, yeah, I think. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, that that's what I've been learning just from this podcast. I'm like, oh, that's totally a part of STEM, but I had no idea it existed. <laughs> you know. I was just about to say your podcast is one of the best examples of meeting different scientists, different backgrounds, different routes into science, the different types of science they do, mm -hmm. um, what their job is on a daily basis. It's a phenomenal way of, of getting to understand, oh, yeah, this is what different people do. This is absolutely brilliant. Mm hmm I think a lot of times I use science shorthand for STEM because I feel like really all of it is some sort of science, but that's totally a biased perspective. <laughs> but I really do mean that like STEM is super variable and, you know, and also a lot of times the different fields overlap. 
um, like you talked about earlier, where you were using cartoons as an artist to help get a message across because, I mean, art can totally be a part of science and vice versa. Um, so I think there's a lot of overlap in a lot of ways which are really helpful and useful and, and fun. Definitely. And some of the artists that I've worked with are so much better than me about getting a concept across or just making it more attractive. Um, and, and interestingly, of course, sometimes um, in my field, biology, we actually are almost creating art. When, um, when I take pictures of cells um, or you know, pictures of anatomy, it, is, it can be stunning. It can be artistically stunning and really capture people's imagination. And I forget that sort of side of me sometimes. I think, oh, this is my biology. But actually, it's almost part art. Um, so I love working with, um, with artists and, and different people to really try and capture uh, what it is we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, some of the most fun conversations I've been have with, are um, with an artist that I've been working with recently. Um, and she really challenges me because she's trying to draw pictures of how I do my science. But that means I've got to explain it correctly. Um, so sometimes when she draws something, I'm thinking, I did explain it that way, but that's not right. I've explained it in the wrong way, and she's taken this meaning from it. And suddenly I get a, a view of what other people think I do, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, no, I'm explaining that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, think of those memes where it's like what I do, what my family thinks I do, what my fellow students think I do, and it's like all different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's and that's so true isn't it actually uh -huh. those, those those memes are kind of right in a way uh -huh. um if if i ask my sort of family and friends that aren't scientists what do you do at work their their picture of my day is actually fairly glamorous which is nice um but mostly not what i spend my life doing right yeah yeah my mom still thinks i count birds but in reality i drive in there and fall in holes a lot <laughs> <So>. <laughs> This has just been a really great conversation. It's been so nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. And um, I'm going to go look up all the things you've written because I'm very intrigued. Oh, thank you. And I apologize in advance if uh, you do read anything and my science fiction is wrong. I tried to make it right. Uh, well, um, it's, <laughs> it's a bit of liberty that to be had there, you know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But thank you so much for doing the podcast. I think they're phenomenal. And I think they're a great way of chatting to different people and getting people's views across in different ways. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, all it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter. Um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.